I am a black, middle-class, highly educated woman. And I had to call my mama in to get correct medical care. What does that mean for folks who don't have even half of what I have going for me? Hi, you're listening to Crafting Theology, presented by the St. Louis University Department of Theological Studies. On this podcast, we talk to scholars about the key life experiences that shaped the direction of their research. We hope these conversations illuminate both the how and the why of theological studies in a changing world. Hello, my name is Michael McClymond. I am professor of modern Christianity at St. Louis University. And it is my privilege today to be speaking with Professor Emily Towns, who is the Dean of the Vanderbilt Divinity uh, School and the E. Rhodes and Leona B. Carpenter Professor of Womanist Ethics and Society. She is the author of a number of books. Um, uh, the one maybe most specifically related to this interview is called Breaking the Fine Reign of Death. She's also the author of Womanist Ethics and the Cultural Production of Evil, and In a Blaze of Glory, colon, Womanist Spirituality as Social Witness. Uh, Professor Towns, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask a question just to contextualize your work, first mm-hmm. of all. Um, there are various categories, as I read your biography, that would seem to apply to your life and work. Scholar, author, teacher, administrator, spiritual leader, uh, public intellectual advocate, media figure, how would you prioritize the different roles that you play and, and how do they how are they interconnected mm. for you? I try to live my life as a person of deep faith. And then when that hopefully is in place, then the the one that of the list you read, um, probably the administrator. Um because all of the rest is necessary for me to be um, a passable administrator. And by that I mean an administrator that um, listens, um, cares about the folks that I come in contact with, both internal to the Divinity School but also in the wider university and the community and the city And um, it just keeps going in that way. And all of those other roles are pieces of how I get at that. Mm, That's very interesting. I I suppose many people wouldn't connect faith and administration. Oh, they should. That may be why so many people run for the hills when it comes to administration. I think there there may be too many administrators who think you check certain things at the door. Um, But for me, I approach my job uh, as dean as a social ethicist, which was my scholarly training, uh, and a Christian social ethicist at that who uses womanist methodologies to do her work. Um, So each day I walk into the office or wake up or have worked on something in my sleep overnight, um, I'm looking at it in terms of systems and structures and how 
individuals fit into them or not and how we can um, think through how to work together or is this something that needs to be a separate project or maybe two or three people or the community and what is it that we're trying to create and um, have we created it or are we on the way to creating it? These are all questions I ask when um, I'm doing my research and writing and reflecting as a, as a Christian social ethicist. So uh, I think maybe to too many administrators' perils, um, especially if you're in theological education of any kind, you don't bring or you don't use the training that you spent years and a lot of money to learn and get better at um, for the very thing that you're there, what you did before is what got you there. Mm -hmm. So you, there, I see people sort of jettison that. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't, I didn't want to be that person. Hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, could you indicate how you first became involved in health care as an ethical issue, uh, the, the backstory to, to your book, uh, Breaking the Fine Rain of Death? In 1990, my father died suddenly. I was living and working in the Chicago area. Um, my home is in Durham, North Carolina. And so, and I happened to be, uh, no, I was in Kansas City, and I happened to be in Chicago, so I had to come back to Kansas City to fly out to Durham to be with my mother and sister. And um, I asked my mom, please don't cremate him before I get home, because I know both, knew both my parents wanted to be cremated. Uh, and she thought that was a strange request, but and I said, I need to say goodbye. Hmm. So she didn't argue, which was unusual. Um, and um, when I got home, uh, we went to, to view his body, and um, I said goodbye. And mom and my sister, Tricia, found that it was helpful for them, too, and they didn't expect it because they decided at the last minute they were not going to let me go in alone. And I would have been fine, but they didn't want that. So we were um, sitting in the kitchen, um, and I knew that my mother's two sisters and her brother, one of her two brothers, and an uncle who married into the family were driving up from Florida. They just got in the car and started driving north. And um, I heard something out in the yard, figured it must be them. I walked to the door, and they're all getting out of the car. And I see my Uncle Pete. And the minute I see him, I think to myself, he's got AIDS. And um, I didn't say anything to anyone. And you know, we had family time and everything. And 
the cousins, there were three of us who were home at that at mom's house at that point. We got consigned to the basement to sleep and do everything else, and the adults were upstairs, and I'm the oldest. And we just started talking, and it turned out each one of us had the same thought when we saw him the first time. And as the oldest, they looked at me and said, uh, you have to ask. You're the oldest. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why are you all? Why, why don't you send the youngest? No, no. So the next morning, my mother was a very early riser. I went upstairs because uh, I'm an early riser too, and um, asked how she was doing. And she said, I'm doing okay. Yeah, okay. And I said, Mom, I've got to ask you. Does Uncle Pete have AIDS? And she stopped. What she, she was making coffee. She stopped, didn't look up, and just said, yes. And then she said, but we've decided we're going to take care of him. And I watched as my two aunts, um, who were charged with his care in Florida, that was where they were, they were living, took care of him for the next year as he began to fail and eventually die, a year and a half. And my other uncle, who was flying in from Texas and had had a life full of many women, I'll just put it that way, he knew women who were in the Social Security Administration. And so he just asked them, what do we have to do? And it turned out because of his connections, all of the health care that's available, it was available at that time, came my uncle's way. He didn't have to pay for a thing. But what he had was knowledge, or somebody in the family knew who to talk to, where to go, and what to do. And I thought, how many people are out there dying of complications from AIDS and don't have this care? I said, huh, there's something wrong with that. I mean, I was glad he was getting the care, but the ethicist in me was thinking, What's, what's up with this health care system and the Social Service Administration? How, how is this working? I don't get it. And he was a young man. He was 60 when he died a year and a half later. Um, so that got me thinking. Um, and then I uh, had my own health care crisis and... Um, was eventually sent to an oncologist, which was the protocol um, for that. It did not mean I had cancer, but um, those are the folks who decide those things about women's bodies. And he was convinced that all my symptoms meant that I needed to have a hysterectomy. And my response to him was, 
My mother is the only one who can give me permission to get rid of my womb. She gave it to me. She's the only one who can tell me that I can lose it. He was a little surprised at my response, but he didn't argue very much. And so I asked Mom to come up for the next appointment. Well, my mother was a molecular biologist, and at that time she was also dean of uh, the college at North Carolina Central University. She was the first black woman to get a PhD in molecular biology from the University of Michigan. Mom was formidable. She's a little tiny thing. Um, and so we're sitting in the exam room waiting for the doctor to come in. It's a rather tallish white guy, as I recall. I don't remember his name anymore. And Mom was sitting in the chair next to the exam table. And I uh, said to her, Mom, you can talk. And she said, I can talk? I said, yes, you can talk. I give you permission to talk today. And she said, okay. So the doctor comes in. I said, doctor so-and-so, this is my mother, Dr. Mary Towns. He shakes her hand and says, oh, Mary, so good to meet you. And she goes, Dr. Towns. The whole room shifted. I had never seen a power play like that, a one-two power play. And Mom won because he immediately became deferential. And, and suddenly I didn't have to have a hysterectomy. So as we're leaving the hospital, I'm like, Mom, this man told me I had to have a history. I did not bring you up here on false pretenses. She said, I know. I know. But this is why I came. And so we're sitting at lunch, and I'm going, Mom, I am a black, middle-class, highly educated woman. And I had to call my mama in to get correct medical care. What does that mean for folks who don't have even half of what I have going for me? So the book, I didn't realize it at the time, but the book was starting to form. Um, so those were the most obvious things. Um, I tend to write in sort of the cloud theory of writing. It, I don't know I'm writing until a book until I've written enough things with totally disparate reasons in mind that I realize, oh, I'm saying something here, and it's actually got a logic to it. Um, so that's that's. Well, that's that's phenomenal. The. Um, the, the levels of connection, the interconnection of, of your life and your writing. Uh, and you got me interested in your mother as a molecular biologist and the focus on the body and on health care. Well, she liked the little tiny, the little tiny animals. She was very clear. Yeah. She only wanted to deal with the one-cell things. I see. She wasn't a big fan on anything much bigger. Well, now that book came out um, 20 years ago, mm -hmm. this, this year. Mm -hmm. um, what have you seen in the, in the interim in terms of the issues that you raised in your book? I wish I could say 
there's been a huge improvement, but I can't. And that, con that's a concern. I, I really don't understand um, how we can be sitting in the country that pays the most per person on health care and have such inadequate care for the majority of people in the country. And we are quickly losing that ability for those of us who are higher and higher up on the economic ladder. What I do see and do have hope in, though, is the ways in which community-based groups that aren't related to churches per se, but very intimately involved in their communities, are wedding healthcare with a whole matrix of issues that they see indigenous to the community mm -hmm. that they can then try to gather people to address and work on their behalf, which is what I was advocating for, but only in the form of uh, religious communities 20 years ago, because um, there was a long history of um, black churches being the primary points for health care before the public service, uh, public, what is it called? Public, public health system uh, was instituted. And the book was a call back to that. And some denominations like the United Methodists were doing the home um, health nurse model, which is a version of that, and was, that was starting to grow. Um, but now I'm really, um, really um, moved by what I'm seeing, um, even in the city of Nashville, which is a huge healthcare mecca, and we have some of the worst co coverage in the state. But our state has pretty poor, poor coverage because of politics, basically. Um, that um, folks are combining the issues and seeing the connections and realizing that um, it's not only enough to talk about health care or housing or gentrification or education, which tends to be the ones that are most prominent um, in, 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 in Nashville. Um, but you've got to put those together and try and move all of them together in a, in a coherent agenda for the neighborhood to address its own care. We have a conversation in ethics about intersectionality, but I've mm -hmm. never heard people include health care into the intersectionality mm -hmm. discussion. I don't, I don't think you just hear it in my work alone because of the... Um, things I've been doing around healthcare that I still sort of keep a hand in. Um, but I'm, I'm hearing other um, black women theologians and ethicists also talking about healthcare, not necessarily in their writing, but when we're at conferences and I'm listening to papers, I hear it more and more um, be on the list because as it turns out, so many folks we know are uh, contracting cancer and dying. And so there's this awareness, like, wait a minute, 
this is this is our mortality issue as well. Professor Towns, your book, uh, Breaking the Fine Rain of Death, just has a wealth of statistics in it. Mm. It's a very remarkable book because it also has uh, biblical reflections and as you're interwoven. But I wanted to ask you, I mean, about like just one of the statistics that jumped out at me on page uh, 63 is that high blood pressure, hypertension is twice as common among black Americans in comparison with uh, with white Americans. And so... I was wondering what what kind of public policies would you advocate um, to address an issue like this where there's a disparate mm-hmm. impact of mm-hmm. a particular disease or condition on the population? The blood pressure statistic um, often arises out of stress-related causes. All right, so what's causing the stress? Well... For a lot of black people, it's just surviving while black is causing the stress. Um, So what do we need to do as a nation, as communities, as individuals, um, to address the inordinate impact of racism on black people's lives? And I would argue it is a stressor on those white folk and black folk who perpetrate it because it takes a lot of energy to hold hatred in place, even when you think you're not doing it, even when you think you're not contributing to it because you're not out there with the the skinheads and the neo-Nazis and the um, right-wing folk who I, I, I don't even want to call them alt-right because that's too trite a, a name for it. They're, they're white supremacists. Uh, it takes a lot of energy to keep up that stuff. Uh, and it's not healthy. So how do we, um, as individuals, as a nation, as people, um, decide enough is enough? Uh, first of all, If we look at our country and look at the resources we have available to us, there's more than enough for everyone. But we do this hoarding thing. Um, And then when you hoard, you've got to protect it. When you've got to protect, you've got to expend energy and often resources. And then it becomes the thing rather than talking about we the people, or the common good, mm-hmm. or the pursuit of liberty and happiness. You have some of those big markers for us. Um, and within uh, religious communities, dare I say things like love and hope? Uh, I dare, mm-hmm. because I really believe in those things that... Um, Walk me back from despair. Um, that wasn't, I wasn't taught in any religious school I have ever been in from Sunday school at Asbury Temple United Methodist Church, the little church by the side of the road where everybody's somebody and Christ is the Lord. From that moment forward, 
in any school that despair was the way to go. <laughs> hope was. Hope is. Love is. Um, and that leads you to justice. So um, it's not the, the, the typical answer that uh, you'll hear from politicians, but for me it is um, the way that we need to start rethinking our lives hmm. and our social order. Thanks for listening to our podcast. In just a moment, we will return to this extended interview with Emily Towns as she reflects on health in the Black community and the recent passings of Katie Cannon and James Cohn. Please subscribe to Crafting Theology on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. For more information on the St. Louis University Department of Theological Studies, visit our website, slu.edu theology. I'm hearing this, this very inclusive um, vision from you of the mm. kind of we the people that looks at the general well-being but also attends to the particular needs of different communities mm-hmm. or subgroups. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, what, could you talk specifically about black women and mm-hmm. the, the particular health mm-hmm. uh, uh, concerns and challenges there? Oh, man, that's a hard one this week. We just, um, on Monday, um, we had the memorial service for uh, Katie Geneva Cannon, who was the woman who started womanist ethics in the academy in the early to mid-'80s. And Katie was a, a, a mentor and then a colleague and then a friend of over 30 years. Um, she died at age 68 uh, from uh, acute leukemia. Way too soon. As it turns out, she, there were little markers that looking back you go, oh yeah, she should have gone then, but that's hindsight and uh, it's, it's totally irrelevant now. Um, her death, she actually died August 8th and that f- is after, what, two months after James Cohn died, also from cancer. And a year ago now, one of my colleagues at Vanderbilt, Dale Andrews, um, died from cancer. So a lot of us in that age range or in this age range are looking at each other and going, what do we need to change? Because there were different cancers. Dale's was uh, liver. Jim was prostate. Katie's was leukemia. Um, But a lot, you know, there's just enough research out there that suggests stress does not help you stay away from cancer. Um, And black women's health. 
is particularly uh, susceptible to stresses. Um, and so, for me at least, it becomes an opportunity to sort of do a, a gut, a communal gut check. Now, what are we doing? Are we, um, are we taking time to center ourselves in whatever form of meditation or prayer we need to each day? Are we creating spaces where we actually do nothing? Maybe not for long stretches of time, but hey, let's start with five minutes and see if we can grow it a little bit just to reorient um, all of our molecules a little bit. Are we overworking um, and overfunctioning? Are we taking time with those whom we love? Um, I have never in my life had as many people as I know say to me or hear myself saying to them, you know I love you. I mean, expressing care and concern um, for each other in ways, I mean, it's not going to stop. The world's not going to stop. So how do we then stop ourselves long enough to be... Um, healthy. So black women's health in general um, is still highly problematic. We've got too many folks with high blood pressure, too many folks with high cholesterol, too many folks with type 2 diabetes. We're lucky in that way that it's not type 1, but there's a little irony in me saying that type 2 is lucky. Um, and um, the level of heart attack and stroke is alarming. And um, we still are a overrepresented population of, of um, in, in terms of uh, when you look at women, um, of who has uh, HIV or full-blown AIDS. And uh, it's not, still not from intravenous drug use. It's from uh, infected partners. <sighs> but I still have hope. I still have hope. The, the message of slowing down, I think, would find some resonance at a Catholic Jesuit institution. Mm. That oh, is, it, the Catholic Jesuits are really hard-driving dudes. Well, this is true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is true. The discernment is often to discern vocation. Oh, okay. Which means, you, yeah, the, the Jesuits, of course, were not like the Benedictines. They weren't praying with one another mm -hmm. at certain hours. They were out and about. So that's uh, your point is well made. If we could shift a little bit, um, I wanted to draw you out on the term womanist mm -hmm. and what that means in your approach and method to thinking and writing and engaging with others. And if I could throw a couple of terms alongside of that, um, imagine a womanist and a feminist and a liberationist mm -hmm. all engaging this issue we've been talking about, which is which is healthcare and the ethics of healthcare. Mm -hmm. Would would they all be on the same page, or would there be some nuances of difference? Well, it's, it would depend on the person. Um, 
who was representing each one of those groups. But um, I'll start with Womanist because that's the one I know the best. Um, it is um, someone who uses a womanist methodology begins with an awareness that um, either interstructural or uh, intersectional, you can choose which inner, uh, there is an uh, inter interstructural analysis of race, gender, class, sex, and sexuality, and sexual orientation that is probably ranging around in any thing we look at, or I look at. And so what I'm trying to do as a womanist is very consciously look at either a situation or a concept or uh, a social problem with those, with those lenses constantly flipping. It's sort of like you're in the optometrist chair, and is it one or is it two? Mm. Is it two or is it three? Is it three or two or four? I mean, you just keep flipping um, because you see different things. And it helps, I think, um, create a more robust understanding of what is it that I'm looking at. I don't know why I thought for some strange reason that a study on evil would be an easy thing to do. <laughs> but I did before I started it. Um, and then, you know, it took about 10 years to write. Uh, and it only, it's now uh, the Cultural Production of Evil book is uh, 13 years old, and it sort of got discovered three years ago. <laughs> it was ahead of its time, I think. And then all of a sudden, people found it and went, wow, this is so exciting. Are you doing more? I said, I finished that 13 <laughs> years ago. I have moved on. So now I have to go back and, and talk about it. And uh, it's really interesting to do that. But as a womanist, um, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to recognize ways that I can bring all of who I am as an embodied person and the social and the religious and the spiritual and the intellectual history that comes from being raised Ross and Mary Town's daughter. Um, some feminists um, will integrate in those ways, but I find that often sex and sexuality and sexism tends to be the lead on that, and I, I, I do think not enough then bring in the rest, even though they say it. Um, and a liberationist um, theoretically should be concerned about the world, theoretically. Um, so we might say the same things on a given topic or about a certain event. But for me, at least, the difference is the approach I take in getting there. Um, and whom I, and who I'm listening to, um, 
because I don't think womanist work can be done in isolation or a solo project. I, um, when I'm working on a book, I workshop the chapters in lectures, which means I have to rewrite them for the ear, uh, then for the eye, and then change them back. But I want people to give me feedback. Am I, am I blowing smoke? Or is this making sense? And one of the most helpful moments in Breaking the Fine Rain of Death was when I was doing um, the draft of the chapter, The Doctor Ain't Taking No Sticks, uh, in Dallas, Texas, which was a sort of brave thing to do, but, you know, I was young. I didn't know it. Um, and it was, the lecture was well-received. And an This is the chapter on the Tuskegee mm-hmm. study, right? Yep. And the... The after the talk, an older white gentleman came up to me. He's sort of the quintessential older white guy, white hair, sort of shuffled. I thought, oh my, what what am I going to get blasted for? And he he liked the talk. He said, but there's one thing you're not doing. There's one thing you absolutely must incorporate. I said, what's that? He said, insurance. I said, what? He said, insurance. I said, say more. He said, I saw my doctor for the last time this week. I thought, ooh, that's sad news. Are you telling me you're getting ready to leave this? What? He said, because your health plan has switched to a different insurer, I can't give you the care I know you need. And I refuse to give you inadequate care. So I'm going to have to let you go. And I was, I just, I'm sure my mouth was dropped open. And he said, you have to include how the insurance industry is disproportionately, disproportionately influencing health care. I didn't get it in as much as I know he probably would have liked, but that shifted for me um, because then I began to see it all over the place. It's like, oh, my goodness, that's why that test wasn't run. That's why, you know, it was was a revelatory moment. And if I had not been workshopping this, it would have never crossed my awareness, because I hadn't run into it, and nobody I knew had faced that yet with their health care plans. So it wasn't on the radar screen. Yeah, that issue may have gotten worse in recent years. I talked to physicians Mm. who are on the verge of leaving the practice of medicine because of their conflict. They say, I spent all my time fighting the insurance companies. Yeah, yeah. I'm always surprised when I see one of my doctors and it's more than 15 minutes. I start getting jumpy. <laughs> it's like, don't you have to go somewhere? <laughs> That's not good. I had one more question. I wanted to ask um, about um, new projects and undertakings mm-hmm. that you're pursuing. What, what might lie ahead? Well, as long as I'm a dean, not much of new projects. I 
am not somebody who can do administrative thinking and creative thinking in the same day or the same week or the same month. I can do short projects, like working on the paper for this, this conference. But a sustained project, uh, it's going to be another five or so years away before I get to something like that, unless I can find a way in the summer to really get all the rest I need right away and then have the rest of the summer to write when I don't have to be in the, in the office every day. Um, but there are things that have uh, notions, there are two notions that I'm playing with a lot that I'm not doing uh, for the conference here. One is the concept of colored orneriness. And I, I'm, I'm really trying to figure out what I mean by that. As I've done a lecture on it, I've done a couple, three lectures on it. I'll probably do one in two weeks as I keep trying. What am I talking? Where did that come from? And what do I mean by it? I need to figure that out. And um, the second notion is shadow boxing the ridiculous. I need to figure out what I mean by that too. Um, you can you can see sort of the black sermonic tradition coming out where you come up with a colorful wordplay and then you got to figure it out. Well, that's me right now. I like both of those. Yeah, I, so I got I got to do something with them, and I don't know if they go together. I don't know if they're a chapter. I don't know if they're a book. I just don't know. But I do know there's something there. Because every time I do either one or the other, people are like, so tell me some more about it. And I'm like, I gave you all I got right now. So you tell me what you hear. Um, so that's where I am. Well, I, I hope to hear more about both of those topics uh, in the coming days, and I want to thank you for doing this interview with us, oh, Professor you're welcome. Towns. This you're has welcome. really been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. You make it easy, so thank you. A special thanks for this episode goes to Jeff Bishop and Adrian McCarthy of the Healthcare Ethics Department for hosting Emily Towns for the Health and Social Justice Conference in September 2018. This podcast was produced and edited by Craig Sanders and Mitchell Stevens, of the SLU Theology Digital Communications Team. To find out more about the Theological Studies Department, programs, and faculty, visit our website, slu.edu theology.